0: I feel like quoting Monty Python and now for something completely different because I'm not a Buddhist teacher, I'm not a Buddhist scholar. I wouldn't even call myself a Buddhist, so I'm slightly out of place here. However, I've derived a lot of benefit, insight, Inspiration, practice from Buddhist teachings. Yet my real interest is what is it that lies at the core of all the world's spiritual traditions? I think there's some, there's a common essence, and that's what I'm fascinated by, and by how can we bring this out into the world today through all the different traditions? All the different traditions. When I started out on this journey, I had no interest whatsoever in spirituality. I'd rejected religion as a kid. I was a budding scientist, mathematician, loved that area. Religion was just a load of weird, outdated, Millennia old mumbo jumbo that had no relevance to contemporary life. And during my college days in England, I began to realize that there was something that was missing from science. I was, I'd got to the stage in physics where. I could solve Schrodinger's equation for the hydrogen atom, which is meaningless to most of you, I'm sure. For me, it was fascinating. It shows how, from mathematics, you can actually start deducing physical matter and chemistry. Absolutely fascinating. And then I realized that, however far one went, it was never going to explain... Why there was consciousness in the universe, and here was I, a conscious being, doing the mathematics of studying hydrogen, from which the universe had begun, and hydrogen had evolved into all these other elements, and life had begun, and the whole process leading to us and leading to me, studying hydrogen. And it's like a sort of this paradox—not well, really a paradox, but like this puzzle how had hydrogen got to the state where it could observe itself? And I realized no amount of studying Schrodinger's wave equation or any physics was ever going to bring that alive. So I started looking around, thinking, you know, what, what is consciousness? Getting fascinated by what, what do we mean by consciousness? What is it? I thought at the time I... Would find it in philosophy, but I found philosophy was just, at Cambridge at least, it was just the study of dead philosophers. I wanted to sort of do philosophy and get my mental hands in there. I ended up doing psychology, thinking that would help me understand consciousness, and I learned a lot about the brain processes, chemical processes, memory, perception, lo- all that stuff. Fascinating. No one was interested in consciousness. And I realized the people who were interested, the people who'd really researched consciousness, were not our scientists so much. They were the people in the East who'd sat down to actually observe their own consciousness. And so like many others, many of the spirit rock teachers here, I took that journey East and spent my time in India studying the teachers. And that's when it dawned on me that there was something to spirituality. Not religion so much, but to, that, to the spiritual essence. And I saw that that basic wisdom had arisen many, many, many times in history. And the people who tapped into that wisdom naturally tried to share it with those around them, their students, other people, but the students not being as enlightened or awakened as the teacher probably didn't get 100% of it, they got their their 80% or whatever, and they passed that on to their people who got their 80% of that, who passed it on, and then it got translated into another language and then absorbed by another culture. And you have this process of just gradually, over time, the teachings just get lost. Bits uh, bits get in. bits get forgotten. I sometimes jokingly call it truth decay. The truth gradually decays. Or when I'm in a more formal mode, I talk about the entropy of wisdom. Entropy creeps into wisdom. If you leave it alone and just pass it around from one culture to another. It's a bit like taking a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. Each copy just gets a little bit degraded except that today, of course, we have digital technology and we don't use photocopies and copies are perfect. And it struck me, in a way, this is what I think is happening today with spiritual wisdom. We are not in a world where one teacher arises and passes down the teaching by word of mouth and then it gets written down and then translated and passed on. Because of the technology we have, we are in a totally different world. Now with the internet, not just the internet, but also audio, video technology, we can receive teachings in their original form, their pure form, transmit them around the world. We can access... Really, the spirituality, the spiritual wisdom of the whole world at any time in history, almost all of it is becoming available to us now, what records exist. This has never happened on the planet before. This is a unique time for the re-emergence of spiritual wisdom. And what is it 30, 31 years ago, I've just been reminded this evening, 31 years ago I wrote a book called The Global Brain, in which I was looking ahead to really the coming of the internet. the internet. The word the internet came out about the same time as the book. I didn't even know the word internet then, but looking ahead what was going to happen to the world through computer networking. Because in my scientific hat, I also had a, an interest in computers and worked with computers and done early networking stuff. And... It's been amazing to see what has happened over the ensuing 30 years. But the one thing I saw then was this would, this would really further the spiritual awakening of humanity. It would do many, many other things, but it would further the awakening of humanity because we would start having access to all the world's spiritual teachings. But more than that, we would be learning from each other, sharing our wisdom. And whenever you have a situation where people are sharing wisdom with each other, they're learning from each other, you get positive feedback. I mean, you come here tonight, you listen to me, I listen to other people, I read stuff, I access the internet, you do the same, you talk to your friends, you may have groups you run yourself. We are all learning from each other the whole time. And in that process, what I find fascinating is we are collectively, collectively honing in on that essential spiritual message. And as we do, it's getting clearer and clearer and clearer. And I remember when I started on my own journey, my own spiritual path, I had all these incredibly complex high-pollution ideas of what enlightenment or awakening was about, and the journey was this incredibly difficult journey, but if you really worked at it for years and years and years, and maybe if you were lucky, you might get there this life, but if not, there are other lifetimes to work through. And just gradually over time, it just gets simpler and simpler and simpler and simpler. And as I sometimes phrase it these days, it's, it's just letting go. It's just letting go. But that's also very difficult because we have so many, so much training to try to make things happen that we actually try to let go rather than just allow letting go to happen. So I see that as one of the core the core ideas of all the spiritual traditions is, is letting go. As Ajahn Chah said, if you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you will let go completely, you'll have complete peace. And I've, be, I've been interested in why is it we hold on? Why do we hold on? What, it is, what is it in our psyche that causes us to hold on like we do? And I think part of it is we've been conditioned by our culture into a belief system that says, if you're, if you're not happy, If you're not at peace, if you're not content, do something about it. Get something, change something, make something happen. The basic belief system which runs our culture relies upon this idea that how things are in the world around us determines how we feel inside. And I think what all the great teachers have said is actually the opposite is true. How we feel inside is nothing to do with how the world is. It's about how we are, our attitude, how we're seeing the world. And the result is that all the time we're looking for satisfaction out there. We're looking for contentment. We're looking for peace. We're looking for happiness. Call it what you will. We're looking for a better state of mind. It's what I call the generic state of feeling okay. We want to feel okay. We don't want to feel bad. We don't want to suffer. We're looking to feel okay. And we're more or less hypnotized from birth into the belief that in order to feel okay, we have to have things be the right way. And I think what all the teachings are saying in one way or another is that that sense of ease, contentment, is our natural state of mind. That's our natural state. It's not something we achieve or we go and find. It's just the natural state of the mind when there's nothing to worry about. There's no problems we fall into a state of ease. And that that state of mind is just a state of open awareness, just awareness of what is without any commentary, judgment, worry, concern, whatever. That's the state we touch in meditation, just that state of open awareness, just that open, spacious, accepting what is as it is. And it's a reflection of the fact when, when things are okay in our world, when we're not hungry or cold, when there's nothing wrong, there's nothing that needs attention, when everything is okay in the outside, we feel okay inside. It's a completely natural correspondence. And that applies to just about every creature. I and mean, if you watch your pets, I I tend to favor dogs. The same applies to cats or horses, whatever. Most of the time, they're content. Most of the time, a dog will just sit there, snows on the ground, watching the world go by. That's that natural state of contentment. It's in that state of the mind, just naturally quiescent. I sometimes think of it as like standby mode you know, on your video camera or whatever, it's on, but it's not actually working, but it's ready to go into action. The same with an animal, you know, if suddenly there's a sound, its ears will prick up, it's into an attentive mode, its attention is focused. And if it's nothing to worry about, then it'll go back into that resting mode, that quiet mode of consciousness. It's almost, to put it very, very simply, it's like there's actually just two basic modes of being. There's this restful, open, spacious, content, at-ease mode, where we all would love to be most of the time, but seldom are, and we get on to that. And there's this other mode which is, the focused mode of consciousness, where there's something to attend to. There's some need has arisen. There's something to be done. We're feeling cold. We want to put some clothes on or adjust the heating or something. Temporarily, we go into a more focused mode of consciousness. And in that focused mode, whenever whenever the mind becomes focused, there's a slight tension comes into the mind. You can probably, those of you who've meditated a lot can probably observe this, that when you get caught up in a particular thought or story, the mind becomes slightly tense as it becomes focused on what you're thinking about. You can begin to notice that in meditation. We don't notice it much in life, but when you become still, you can notice this slight tension that comes into the mind. And it's almost, by definition, a state of discontent. We are no longer content with how things are. Something needs attention. We need to get something. We need to do something. We're no longer feeling at ease. And it's really about if they get something, but also it may be avoiding something. We're, looking, we're trying to find something that we need or avoid something that somehow presents some threat or some stress. And then, I was going to go with this. Yeah. The important point here is that what we're trying to do is to return to this natural state. If there's something that's amiss in the world, say we're just hungry, for example, we focus on finding some food, getting something to eat. When we do that, the result is we. we we feel better again, we feel okay, we return to that state of natural mind. And so behind everything we're doing, when you look at it, is the desire to come back to being at ease, being at peace, being content. That's almost like the fundamental desire. The Dalai Lama said in the final analysis, the hope of every person is simply peace of mind. Whatever you do, if you look at it, why you do it, and analyze the reasons, you come back below this reason, below this reason, below this reason. In the end, it all comes back to wanting to feel better, which really is wanting to come back to the natural state. And so we're sort of programmed to take care of things when they arise in order to deal with the need or the danger, the threat, whatever it is, and come back to the natural state. And this is really the, the goal of life. People sometimes say, what's the goal of life? I think of all living systems, the goal is simply to survive, stay alive, feel safe, reproduce the species, keep the species going. But it's about prolonging life. And if life is good, then we feel okay. And so when we feel bad, it's because there's something that needs attention in order to keep us, get us back into the feeling safe at ease mode now what happens in this focus mode is the mind begins to split its experience into a sense of me body self and the rest of the world the body me this me needs something from the world. It needs to sort something out. needs to adjust something. And a model arises in the mind of me, ego, self, and the rest of the world. But it's really it's just a way of thinking. I use the word ego, but I don't see the ego as a thing. It's just a mode of thinking. If I look within myself, I don't find anything called an ego or a separate self. I just find my experience and this sense of meanness to my experience, this sense of presence, which has this quality of Iness. It's a very personal sense of being, this sense of Iness, which is there all through my life. It's that same sense of I-ness that was there when I was a child, a teenager, a young adult that sense of I-ness has never changed, and it's always there. And that's the sense of I-ness, which is knowing the experience. Then within that experience, when there is some thing to be taken care of, some need, when we get into the focus mode, we divide that experience into a sense of self and other. And it's just really a way of thinking about the world, a way of looking at things. But then this, I call it the ego mode of thinking, rather than using the word ego as a thing. Its job is to look after us, to keep us safe, to get us back to a state of feeling okay. It's basically a problem solving way of thinking. There's a problem, let me try and solve it for you. And so it gets into things like assessing what's going on, what's up, what are they thinking, what should I be doing, whatever, what's the problem. It gets into choosing, deciding, oh, this is what I should do, I should do that, whatever, in order to make things better. And then gets into planning, what am I going to do, how am I going to do this, whatever. If you look at your thoughts in meditation, so many of your thoughts, you will notice, in one way or another, are parts of this Problem-solving mode, getting things right, wondering what's going on, working things out. What am I going to do? Was that right? Did I do that right yesterday? Oh shit, that's wrong. Yeah, just goes on and on and on. Just solving problems, most of which don't really exist anyway. But we get into this habit, and it's really it's there. It's trying to, it's trying to help us. And this is what I find so fascinating. It's like we sometimes have this thing that the ego is a bad thing. I don't see it as a bad thing at all. It's actually, it's there in order to help us survive. It's really, it's really a friend that's got a little bit out of control. And the result is we spend so much of our time caught in this mode of thinking. Let's say a dog you know, might spend, let's say, 80% of its time just there quietly watching the world go by. We, you know, human beings, how often do we do that? We come here, maybe occasionally when we're out, you know, sitting quietly with a friend, watching beautiful evening light or something. We touch into it, but the rest of the time we are... Our minds are just going busy, busy, busy. And we call ourselves, you know, we think of ourselves as smart, intelligent beings. Much smarter than a dog. you think we'd have worked out how to be at peace much more. Dog may be there 80% of the time. We should be there 99% of the time. Rather than... 1% 1% of the time or 2% if we're really lucky. And that's the question that's fascinated me is why do human beings get so caught up in their stuff, in the thinking, in this incessant working things out? We end up in this focused mode, in a state of discontent, even when everything around us is perfectly okay. It seems to me there's, there's two things that have actually made human beings different from other creatures. And explain, they're responsible for, for not just what makes us different on the outside, but also in terms of our thinking. The first is that we, we have language. We, we speak to each other, we share ideas. Now, Many other creatures communicate, but by language I mean symbolic language. I can take an experience I've had, I can put that experience in words, something I've learned, something I've discovered, I can share it with you, and you can begin to benefit from that experience. So through language we begin to learn from each other. In fact, so much of our learning from life is from each other. That's what education is about, is learning from each other. And that is the basis of all science, our understanding of the world. It also allows us to communicate with ourselves internally. A lot of what we call thinking is actually us chatting with ourselves. We're talking with ourselves about what's going on, what's happening, what should be happening, what isn't happening, about what happened in the past, what's going to happen, might happen, not happen, you know. There's, this, there's a commentary going on a lot of the time, just chitter-chatter, chitter-chatter. We're just talking to ourselves. That's almost the downside of language. When it's too much, it's a very useful thing in the right proportions, because through that thinking, we can reason, we can work things out. And when it's useful, it's wonderful. The second thing that makes us different is this little thing here the opposable thumb. I mean other animals can hold things a chimpanzee can do that but a chimpanzee can't do that. This gives us the ability to mold things to do fine movements and make things. And you put those two things together creature that can understand the world, can build up vast amount of knowledge of how the world works, and the ability to start changing the world. And you have a whole new creation launched on the planet, a whole new innovative species able to start changing things in order to, basically in order to survive better, in order to feel better. And you could say that's been the motivation behind everything we've done with these two gifts, our understanding and our hands, our tools, our technology. Everything has been in service of making life better in one way or another. And I think it's because we're so good at that that we've got caught in this belief that that is the way to find happiness. That's the way to find peace of mind. That's the way to find contentment. Because we are so good at doing things, to change things. But it doesn't actually work. It works a little bit. But the problem is that We think it's the, the getting things, the changing things, the making things happen that makes us feel happy. In fact, something very different is going on. If you watch your mind carefully, when you, when you think you want something, you think, if I have this, I'll be happy. If I just did this, I'll be happy. For example, um, you, know, you might decide you see a jacket or something. You think if I just had this jacket, I feel much better. And if you look at advertising, I mean, our whole culture, is about every single advertisement you ever see is saying in one way or another, you're missing something, you're not complete, something's wrong, but buy this, whatever it is, this product, this jacket, this experience, whatever it is, you will feel better, you will feel more complete, you will feel more content. That's the underlying message in just about every single advertisement you see. And so you go and you buy whatever it is, say you buy the jacket, and you feel good for a little while. The effect wears off after a while. but You feel good and you think it's because you bought something you wanted that you feel good. If you look more closely, something else is going on. And this becomes apparent through the internet, Now I think this is just a fascinating tiny little twist to shopping on the internet. When you go and buy something on the internet, you you, you find out what you want. You know, say it's this jacket. You look, you find it, you find the style, you find the colour, etc., 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 and you decide "This is it." And the moment you feel better is when you press "Buy Now." It's another three days till UPS delivers it. But we feel good at the moment of saying yes, buying now. In fact, that's the moment your credit card gets debited. That's the moment you should feel bad, but actually we feel good. And the reason we feel good is we're no longer feeling a sense of lack. The jacket hasn't arrived, but we stopped feeling a sense of lack. So what's actually happening beneath all of this is This self-created sense of lack, I say self-created, where we don't have so much control of it because there's so much victims to the marketing, the advertising, to our whole culture that's making us feel this way. But it's a sense of lack that is created inside us. And that sense of lack is what is causing the discontent. We feel we're missing something. What we're actually missing is our own beingness. We're missing that state of ease, contentment, that open, spacious awareness. That's what we're missing, but we don't recognize that. We think we're lacking something in the world, and so we go out and find it and feel a little better, not because the thing has actually made us better, but because we've stopped making ourselves unhappy for a few minutes or ours, whatever. We've stopped creating (laughs) discontent for ourselves. And this again, I think, is what so many of the teachers have pointed out. We're looking in the wrong place. There's that lovely story of Nasruddin, the wise fool in Sufi tales. Probably the most well-known story of his is how he was found one night outside his house under a street lamp scrabbling around on the ground looking for something and his neighbor comes up and says can I help you? have you lost something? and Nasrudin says yes I've, I've lost the key to my house and so the neighbor says well that's, that's important let me help you find it and he gets down with him and they're scrabbling around in the dirt looking for it after a while they don't find it And his neighbor says to Nasruddin, well, where exactly did you drop it? Where where did you drop it? Where did you lose it? And Nasruddin said, oh, somewhere in my house. And he says, well, excuse me. What are you doing looking for it out here? And he says, well, there's more light out here. (laughs) Now, we laugh. But, you know, the point of this this tale is this is what happens to us in life so easily what we're looking for is to return to that state of just natural mind, that open awareness the standby mode whatever you want to call it I'm sure there's terms for it in Buddhist teachings returning to that mode of ease, that's what we're looking for and there's more light in the world. We know so much how to make things happen in the world, how to change things, how to do this, how to get this. This is the world we know how to manipulate and control. The world of the mind is so mysterious to most people. I mean, For us practitioners, it gets clearer and clearer. We get more insights into it. But for the ordinary, the average person who doesn't have a, an inner practice, the mind is very, very mysterious. And so it's easy to go outside, look outside, because there's more light out there. I'm just thinking another, I mean, just coming back to the Christian teaching, there's that phrase you sometimes see, sinners repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand which on a sort of very surface level you might interpret as you know those of you who've done wrong be sorry whatever it is repent because the day of judgment is coming if you look back to the original meanings of the word in greek which is the, it was originally in aramaic and translated into greek the original meanings in greek are very fascinating the word sin is actually a term from archery, amatoia, which means to miss the target, to miss the bullseye, to miss what you're aiming for. So a sinner is someone who's missed the target. And the target that we're all aiming for in life is to return to a state of ease, contentment, joy, happiness, whatever you want to call it. But that's the target we're looking for. So a sinner is somebody who wants that, but has missed it, isn't there. Repent is metanoia, which doesn't mean to be sorry. It means, there's two ways of translating it. either means to change your thinking, or go beyond your current thinking, to go beyond the mind. Because what you're looking for, the kingdom of heaven, is, and the word at hand isn't about time. It means right here, right here, close by. It's not out there. It's right here. So this seems to be part of the, the universal teaching that we, we focus out there, trying to get the things which are going to make us feel okay when the reason we're not feeling okay in the first place is because we have lost touch with the natural mind, through getting into this focused mode of thinking. So what do we do about it? What I've been playing with myself is trying to have a whole new relationship with the ego mind. I say the ego mind is this mode we get into. It's a thinking pattern that comes up that says, you know, it starts analyzing what's going on, making decisions, trying trying to make things better for us. But realizing, as I said earlier, it's actually our friend. We tend to make the ego so easily an enemy. You know, people say, oh, you, you know, I've got to transcend the ego or stop the ego or get rid of the ego or overcome the ego like it's some part of us that shouldn't be there and is bad. The ego has a bad name, particularly in some spiritual traditions. To me, the ego is just, it's it's a way of thinking whose origins were there to help us. That's its function. It's there to help us survive, keep us safe, work things out, make sure everything's okay. It's just got out of control. So what I've been playing with, and just offer this to you as a a suggestion for your own um, practice in life, is when I notice my mind is getting caught up in some stories, some, it could be criticism of myself, Or judgment, or controlling pattern, whatever it is, is just to turn to it and actually, first of all, notice what it's saying. There's usually a wisdom there. You know, happened the other day, I was just, I noticed that little voice telling me, I should be doing more exercise, stretching. You know, I'm not. there it was, telling me I'm not doing what I should be doing. And instead of just sort of saying, oh, shut up, or or taking it seriously and saying, oh, you're absolutely right, I'm no good, I should be doing more, I can't discipline myself enough. It's just turning to it and saying, thank you. Thank you for caring. You've got a point there. You've got a point. Thank you for pointing that out but no need to go on about it. I've got the point. It's like whenever something comes up, I take the attitude it's coming up because it wants to show me something, tell me something. And there seems to be a golden rule in life that if you give things your attention, they're a call for attention. If you give them your attention, things work out much, much better than if you hold your attention back. And you probably... All of you, I should imagine, or most of you will probably notice this in meditation sometimes, there'll be some, some discomfort, some tightness, some, something in the body. You can ignore it, you can resist it, you can wish it weren't there. But you probably all discover time and again the best thing is just to do the opposite and just say, hello, who are you? what are you like? Oh, I see. Oh, you're like this. There's a bit like this, a bit like that. Oh, that's interesting. Letting it in and time and again you'll find it just begins to unwind and dissolve its own accord. And letting in to me is a key part of letting go. I said, I th- I think letting go is a key theme in all spiritual traditions. We think of letting go as getting rid of something, not having it anymore. I need to let go of my feelings about this relationship, or I need to let go of my attitude towards this, or whatever it is. We think of letting go as actually not having something anymore. I found that and I think many other teachers have said this as well, letting go is much better interpreted as letting be, allowing things to be as they are rather than resisting them, just letting them be as they are. But in order to let them be, very often you have to first of all let them in to actually know what it is to allow to be there. And if you've got a um, emotion like um, anger, something we probably all experience from time to time, the easy thing to do is to sort of push it out to the edge of our awareness, keep it out there, and it won't bother us too much. Keep it keep it out there, and we'll be safe. But I found the most effective way to deal with these things, any emotional, is to do the opposite. It's like with a physical sensation, let it in. Like, who are you? What are you like? Let me, let me feel you. Not in any sense of getting into it, but just notice how it feels in the body. What's going on? What's happening? Being inquiring, opening, allowing it to be there. And so the same thing I find is useful with the ego mind. If we're going to let go of the ego, try just letting it be and letting it in. Noticing what it's saying. It wants to say something to you. And just notice. <coughs> Driving here tonight, I got caught in traffic and a little critical voice comes up, you know, come on, you should have left earlier. Thank you. Yes, I should have done, but, you know. <laughs> thank you. No need to go on about it. Thank you for caring. Is Just thank you for caring. The ego is caring for us. It has our best interests at heart. It just gets totally caught up in what it thinks is best for us and doesn't realize it's actually on the wrong track 80, 90% of the time. And it's just saying to it, thank you, but actually... You know, I'd feel a lot better, a lot easier if you just step back a bit. So I think I just I just leave you with that as a suggestion. Just whenever you notice your mind coming in with some some advice, some story, wanting you to do something, whatever it is wondering. You know what other people are thinking of you, something like that. Another one which I know from my own experience comes in. You know, I wonder what you know what they're going to think of me if I do that. Oh my God! It's like, oh, that's so sweet of you to worry about me like that. <laughs> so sweet, thank you, thank you. And by letting things in, they lose their power over us. It's only when we keep them out they have power over us. It's paradoxical. But it's what Jung saw when he said, what you resist persists. What you don't allow into your awareness stays there and controls you. What you allow in begins to free up and dissolve. So why don't I pause there and see if there's any questions or anything you'd like to discuss or explore around this. If anything.
1: Um, I saw your Global Brain video about a year ago because James is a big fan of that and <laughs> um, watched it again tonight before coming here. And um, you were talking about the, you know, truth becoming more and more, you know, because of the connections, and yeah. the internet, and, and um, I was just wondering about that, in, and in relationship to how the universe is expanding at a more rapid rate, if you, if you see any, you know, it's just interesting that it's happening right. at the same time, and do you have any thoughts on that? I
0: don't think they're connected not obviously connected um, and we don't really know what's happening with the universe <laughs> I say that because I, I, I keep—I tend to keep up to date on these things you know, the current view is, is expanding faster and faster which has been the view that's just really grown over the last 10 years or so but I do know that everything in science changes and that may just be in 10 years' time, we may see, oh, that was a misunderstanding of some of the data. So that's why I say, who knows what's happening? Um, But I think you're right, what is happening here on Earth with humanity, everything is accelerating. And the acceleration of development is a natural part of any evolution there's a thing called positive feedback. I was talking earlier, we're all learning from each other. Things go faster. We're seeing that acceleration. We're seeing it in science, technology. I mean, now we have to update our operating systems every year or six months or something. Everything is going faster and faster. And so is the spiritual awakening. And it's not just that it's spreading in the world faster and faster, which it clearly is. I mean, When you look at the numbers of people who are doing yoga or starting meditation, you look at the journals, the magazines, the groups, it's exploding, which is really good because this is the time on the planet where we really, really need it. And it's not only growing faster that way, it's also growing faster internally. I mean, how many people here would say they've had their own inner um, journey has been, what's the right word? Their own, I don't like the word progress, but there's been much more happening, more transformation, transition, development, awakening in the last, say, five years and the previous five or ten. Yeah? It's like, and that's because as we're all growing together, it's not just more and more people doing it, but we're learning from each other. And there's this, what I said at the beginning, there's this honing of the wisdom. It's getting simpler and simpler. And that is just allowing each and every one of us to grow faster and faster. Thank you. Over there.
1: Such a fascinating topic. Um, I've recently been teaching my class about the left and right hemispheres of our brain and have revisited the video by Jill Bolte Taylor, um, mm-hmm. Stroke of Insight. Yes. I highly recommend it. Um, and what you're calling natural mind is pretty much her experience in yes. the right hemisphere. Yes. I've been practicing for many years and it's just made me consider just how biological um, this whole thing yes. is. Yes. So your thoughts on hemispheres of the brain?
0: Yes, the left and right brain hemispheres, yes. I mean, th- this, this research started going on back in the 70s, early 80s. And the idea then was that the, you know, the left brain was language, rational thinking, the right brain was spatial, artistic, and over the years, that very sort of you know, polarized view has been um, rethought, and it's realized rethinking came because we realized both sides of the brain are involved in both things. There's a lot of language that goes on here, but the right side's also involved in the processing language, the same with vision. All these things that we thought were sort of separated. Much more of the brain, both sides are involved in it. But the pattern that's coming out now, and it's fascinating, is that there, there is a difference. The left side of the brain is much better at the focused thinking. When we move into focused thinking, and the task we associate more with the left side of the brain, things like language, that sort of thing, reasoning, they're more focused thinking tasks. And the right side of the brain is more that just open, spacious awareness. And this seems, you know, it's a more interesting, more sophisticated way of looking at it. And yes, uh, Jean Bolt Taylor, have most of you seen that video? Uh, her Describing her stroke. She, she was clearly, you know, alternating. Like she was suddenly going into this, this open, whatever you want to call it, spacious sense. It was like a Nirvana experience coming at her out of the blue. And then she was sort of clicking back into the, how can I focus? I've got to find a telephone number to call someone, let them know, and then, <sighs> yeah, Yeah. It, it's clearly, you know, what happens in consciousness, in our experience, is clearly dependent upon what happens in the brain. Yeah. And so there must be a biological basis for what we're, for what we're doing. And so... You know, part of the practice of meditation is learning how to return to that state at will. And that's why for me, you know, the essential instruction in meditation is just to be accepting, allowing whatever is happening, just allowing it to be. Just allowing it to be there, not trying to control meditation at all. Because as soon as we do that, we're getting into the focus, doing, the ego mind is coming in, trying to make it work. And again and again, it's just allowing whatever is just to be. It's
1: yeah. that equanimity practice between these
0: yeah. hemispheres. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, a nice way of putting it. Thanks. Um, I'm
1: I'm wondering about um, thoughts you might have about our our world in terms of um, all the violence and the religious wars and 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 how that um, how that can change for, for us or or is it a, a pessimistic look of the world or um, so your thoughts on that.
0: The, there certainly is a lot of that. The question is, is there more of that than there was in the past? Or are we more aware of something which has always been there? I mean I think it's true. You know, most of the wars in the past were fought over or on religious backgrounds, beliefs or over land, that something, but a lot were fought over religion. I don't, I don't know, but I, what one thing that fascinated me was a book by Steven Pinker came out a couple of years ago. Um, something with violence in the title. Does Anybody know? No, okay. But what he was showing, he, he was showing how the chances of dying at the hands of another human being have gone down steadily over history. Like four or five hundred years ago in Europe, 30% of people died at the hands of someone else, whether they were murdered in war, whatever. And th- this evidence comes from looking at the skeletons, etc., and seeing how people died. And that is just showing how that's got less and less and less and less over time. Now, we hear through our news media, etc., we hear, you know, this atrocious murder here or that one over there, but the actual chances of us dying at the hands of another human being are so, so much less. And that to me is fascinating, showing that's just one bit of data, showing how steadily that's decreased, even though we may read in the newspapers and say, oh my God, isn't it awful? From a larger perspective, it's just a tiny bit of awfulness compared to what there was before. And... All I know is from my own point of view, let's play on the team we want to win. Which is the promoting of kindness, compassion, harmlessness. Was there someone else? Briefly.
1: Um, thanks for your talk and for sharing your ideas. Um, when you were speaking about the internet, my first thought was, you know, I've seen it really as a tool for all kinds of things. That's a given. We all know that. It could be used for good or bad or whatever. Yeah. But it's primarily a tool to disseminate information. And when it comes to spirituality, you were saying that it's really like, it's, it's gotten to a point where that's helping us become kind of like one spiritual mind or like the one spiritual mind of the planet is, is serviced by the internet in a way. It's, it's, it's helping, it. it's strengthening that. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that spirituality or spiritual, what I think are spiritual experiences are really experiences. And when I think of the internet, it's mostly like ideas yeah. coming through. So I want to, you know, of course, thank you for... <laughs> you know, all the knowledge that you've given tonight, but I wonder about that piece of information that you're giving. How is the internet really giving us greater spiritual experiences? Because in the end, we really need to come back and have those in the flesh, in the moment, with each other rather than with a screen. I mean, I can see how, like, I've seen a TED Talk and it's been awesome and it's like, you know, kind of increased my awareness of what's going on and I, I appreciate that a lot. The internet has provided that, but Spirituality is really something that we have to experience with each other and with the present moment. And um, just to wrap it up, um, how are you seeing that really serviced by yeah. the internet? Yeah, I
0: get, yeah, okay. yeah. You know, I mean, totally agree, you know, sp- our spiritual experience or our awakening, uh, whatever it is, is something... Internal it's us, it's a trans- transition that's happening within us. What I was meaning was that there is so much we can benefit from that will um, allow that to happen in us more easily. like I mean okay, this, this talk it will be on Dharma seed, and you know like thousands and thousands of other talks by teachers are there on a place where anybody in the world can go and look through and pick up a talk on meditation, or on this, compassion, forgiveness, whatever it is. Now that talk isn't a spiritual experience, but listening to a teacher talk about compassion, you may find something in that that is useful for you to put into practice in your life. So you have access, even on something like that, to hundreds and hundreds of teachers without the internet you know, you'd be dependent upon you know, what you could find locally or going into a store looking for cassette tapes or something. So it just makes it much more widely available, much more accessible, the teachings. But we have to then take the teachings and put them into practice in our own life. That, that, that's where the um, spiritual growth comes. So the, the information is useful, but it isn't the information itself. We need what we need is what the information is pointing us to. It's time to finish. Let's just finish with a minute or so, just quiet, just sitting.